It's the late summer of 1828 and you're a medical student in Edinburgh. As you wait to go into Dr. Robert Knox's lecture hall, you're discussing with your friends the strange disappearance of a local children's entertainer. James Wilson, or Darth Jamie as he's known throughout the city, is famous for his entertainment and for his club foot. He hasn't been seen for a few weeks and people are wondering what's happened. Why has one of the most recognisable faces in Edinburgh suddenly gone off the grid? The lecture hall opens and you take your seat, excited to see what Dr Robert Knox has in store today. But as Dr Knox reveals the body he's going to use for today's experiment, your excitement turns to curiosity. The first thing you notice is that the body is missing its foot. This is strange, but I guess it's the body of an executed criminal. Who knows how he could have lost his foot? Your curiosity then turns to horror as you realise that the body is also missing its head. What kind of criminal was this? Beheading hasn't been used for centuries. Your mind slowly casts back to the conversation you were having with your friends just outside the lecture hall. The conversation where you all speculated about what had happened to the popular children's entertainer. It couldn't be. Could it? You slowly come to the realisation that the body on Dr Robert Knox's operating table is the body of daft James Wilson. Hello again, hope you're well, or as well as you can be in these strange and uncertain times. I'm here bringing you part two of the Burke and Hare murders, a series of murders for profit in 19th century Edinburgh. In part one, we saw the backgrounds of the four main characters in this story, William Burke, Helen MacDougall, William Hare and Margaret Laird. We saw how they all met and how they came to run the lodging house in Edinburgh. We also saw how they, quite accidentally, fell into their chosen profession. Someone died in their lodgings and they made their money back by selling the body. As we discussed, such a sale could rake in a small fortune. Doctors across Britain, deprived of bodies to experiment on by an act of parliament, were willing to pay huge sums for illicit corpses and not ask any questions about where they came from. One such doctor was Edinburgh's Dr Robert Knox. When we left the story at the end of the last episode, we saw how he had put the body of a well-known prostitute, Mary Patterson, on his operating table. Turns out this was a big mistake. She was so well known that even some of his students were clients of hers and they recognised her straight away. They demanded to know where he had found her body. Serious questions were being asked about where Dr Knox was getting all these corpses from. He was forced to lie low and suspend his trade with the Burke and Hare couples, at least temporarily, just until the heat went off. Would this be the moment at which Dr Knox had some sort of moral epiphany, realising that William Burke and William Hare must be murderers? Well, if he did come to that realisation, he didn't care. As we're about to find out, it wouldn't be long before he was back to trading with the Burke and Hare couples. 
and it wouldn't be long before the law caught up with them all. By the early summer of 1828, the sensational rumours about Dr Knox that had spread through Edinburgh like wildfire were starting to subside. Sure, it was weird that the body of Mary Patterson, a well-known prostitute in the area, had ended up on his operating table, but that didn't necessarily mean that anything untoward was going on. As far as the city was concerned, Dr Knox was still the same eccentric, popular lecturer and William Burke and William Hare, Helen MacDougall and Margaret Laird, well, who were they? They ran an anonymous lodgings somewhere in the city and no one had ever heard of them. As long as this situation persisted, the link between Dr Knox and a group of murderers was never going to be revealed. So it was that in June or July, Dr Knox recommenced his illicit trade with William Burke and William Hare. The next person to fall victim to the Burke and Hare gang was another prostitute, Elizabeth Holden. Again, we see the theme here of the gang preying on the most vulnerable in society, the people who they thought were least likely to be missed. Are we also seeing a theme of misogyny here? A punishing of these women for the job that they were forced to do? It's possible, but it's also likely that they just saw prostitutes as easy targets. Prostitutes were, unfortunately, particularly vulnerable. It should also be remembered that the gang killed a lot of men as well. They didn't really discriminate. In any case, any murder is vicious, any murder is cruel. But what was particularly cruel about this case was that about a week after Elizabeth Holden was murdered, her teenage daughter turned up at the lodgings inquiring about her mother. Well, the gang had learnt from Janet Brown inquiring about Mary Patterson that it wasn't good leaving loose ends like this. They also saw another vulnerable victim. Feigning concern and inviting Elizabeth Holden's daughter into the lodgings, they swiftly did away with her and the following week, her body was on Dr Robert Knox's table. It's around this time, the summer of 1828, that people who live near the Burke and Hare lodgings are starting to notice that the number of people going in the building isn't correlating with the number of people leaving. If the gang were aware of the rumours just starting to surface about their operation, then they didn't show it, because what they did next, aside from being murderous, was completely idiotic. Their next target was one of the most recognisable people in the city, a children's entertainer, James Wilson, also known as Darth Jamie, who would have been instantly recognisable to anyone in Edinburgh through his club foot and his well-known face. When Jamie went missing, and then a couple of weeks later, a body with a missing foot and a cut-off head was presented by Dr Knox, people were outraged. They knew that that was the body of Darth Jamie Wilson. Nothing could yet be proved the rumours and gossip about Dr Knox and the Burke and Hare lodgings were causing a sensation. More than that though, the gang and the doctor should have been worried about the police who now had both firmly in their sights. By now, 
Local people in Edinburgh were going absolutely nowhere near the Burke and Hare lodgings. But that didn't matter to the gang. They could still prey on visitors from outside the city. Indeed, they actually invited one of Helen MacDougall's relatives, Anne MacDougall, to come over from Ireland and stay in Edinburgh with them. Needless to say, it didn't end well for poor old Anne. If you thought that was cruel, the gang went one better with an unspeakable act of cruelty soon after. An elderly woman was passing by with her blind grandson who was only seven or eight years old. After killing the woman, William Hare laid the poor boy across his lap and snapped his back. Both bodies were taken to Dr Knox, who still paid the gang handsomely. And although no local people wanted to stay with them, with Edinburgh being Scotland's capital, they were never going to be short of visitors. It seemed as if their gruesome trade was going to carry on indefinitely. That was until one Halloween night when they made one mistake too many. At the start of part one, I outlined the scene that cold Halloween night in 1828. The Birkenhair lodgings were hosting three guests that night. Now, two of the guests were safe, probably because they were man and wife. They were a couple named James and Anne Gray. The gang reasoned that it would probably be too difficult to attack the pair of them at once. I mean, there were many things, the Birkenhair gang, but they weren't especially brave. In any case... The grey couple were taken to the adjoining lodgings next door and they slept soundly and safely. But the gang had no such qualms about attacking Marjorie Campbell Doherty and she met her doom that night. But what they hadn't factored in was that the room where they hid her body was the same room where the greys had left their belongings. The following morning, William Burke, William Hare and Margaret Laird were all out running errands and it was only Helen McDougall holding the fort at the lodgings. When the Greys turned up and asked to collect their belongings, she had a massive problem on her hands. Shifty and visibly nervous, she said that she didn't know what had happened to their belongings, but whatever they did, they couldn't go in that room. Naturally suspicious, the Greys did exactly that, and they found Doherty's body. In desperation, Helen McDougall offered them a bribe of £10 a week if they would just stay quiet about what they had seen. The Greys had no such intentions and went straight to the police. The game was finally up for the Burke and Hare gang. The police were already aware about all of the suspicions surrounding the Burke and Hare lodgings and they knew this was their chance. They rushed straight to the scene but by the time they got there the gang had already got rid of Marjorie's body. So where had they shipped it? You know where. The police investigation led straight to Dr Robert Knox's door and it was there that James and Anne Gray identified the body of Marjorie Campbell Doherty. William Burke, William Hare, Helen MacDougall and Margaret Laird were arrested on the spot. Now I know how you think this story ends. The four of them are charged, convicted, punished. The link between the gang and Dr Robert Knox is revealed. Case closed, justice served, happy days. Well, 
The reality is actually a little more complicated than that. It's not that there was no evidence against the gang, there certainly was. There was the grey couple identifying Marjorie Doherty's body. There was also the fact that a couple of days after the arrest, the police visited the lodgings with Janet Brown, who was of course Mary Patterson's friend. Brown identified several items of clothing that belonged to Mary Patterson, which further condemned the gang. They must be guilty. But this is the 19th century. There's no DNA evidence, and there's no forensic evidence. Don't forget, of course, that the gang smothered their victims, so there's no murder weapon to speak of. In these circumstances, a conviction against four individuals is far from certain. So what the authorities decided to do was turn the couples against each other. They would offer one couple full immunity from prosecution in exchange for turning King's witness and delivering testimony against the other couple. The only decision now was which couple to give this sweetheart deal to. You might have assumed it would be William Burke and Helen McDougall because, as we've discussed earlier, William Burke was a more likeable man than William Hare. I mean, to the extent that a murderer can be likeable, of course. But perhaps the fact that William Hare and Margaret Laird were slightly younger than their accomplices counted in their favour because it was them who got the deal. It was only William Burke and Helen McDougall who went to trial in December 1828. The trial, which began on Christmas Eve that year, was so well publicised and the pressure for a guilty verdict so strong that it was never really in doubt. At least not in the case of William Burke, who was swiftly found guilty and sentenced to death. But the case against his wife, Helen McDougall, was found not proven. It's not that the jury found her innocent, it's just that they decided to let her go. I guess now is as good a time as any to discuss the relative guilt among the four members of the gang. Now, with regards to the physical act of smothering victims to death, well, that was all the work of William Burke and William Hare, and indeed, most historians when discussing the murders tend to focus on the roles of the two men. However, I would contend that the two women, Helen McDougall and Margaret Laird, bear a huge amount of responsibility as well. Far from being collateral victims, they were willing participants, supporting their husbands, covering for their husbands, motivated by the same greed as their husbands. Let's not forget, Helen McDougall invited a relative of hers from Ireland, knowing full well that her relative was going to be murdered. I'm certainly not arguing that 19th century Britain was an easy place to be a woman. Absolutely not. But it seems to me that Helen McDougall would surely have been found guilty were she a man. In any case, William Burke deserved the fate he got, and we're about to discuss that fate. But it seems to me a travesty of justice that his three accomplices got away without any punishment. Or at least, any legal punishment. There does seem to have been some sort of moral punishment that came their way, certainly in the case of William Hare. Now, William Hare had to be kept in custody until February of 1829 for his own safety, and during this time there was a petition 
by daft Jamie Wilson's mother and sister to have him prosecuted. The petition received huge public support. People wanted to see Hare hanged, but of course, he was legally protected, legally safe from prosecution, so there was nothing the authorities could do, however much they might have wanted to. In February of 1829, he slipped across the border into England, and it is thought that he spent the rest of his days as a beggar in London. And what about the two women? Well, we don't know too much about Helen MacDougall's fate. It's thought that she emigrated to Australia and was never heard from again. In the case of Margaret Laird, she actually gave birth to her and William Hare's child while in police custody in the winter of 1828-29. Incidentally, this may well have been another reason why they were the couple who got the immunity deal, not the Burt couple. In any case, mother and baby were released at some point in 1829, and Margaret tried to slip away to Ireland. But while waiting for a boat in Glasgow, she was spotted and recognised and only narrowly escaped a lynch mob by finding refuge in a nearby police station. Eventually, she did get to Ireland, and again, it is not known what happened to her. But what about the fifth person in this sordid tale? What about Dr Robert Knox? Knox was in an interesting legal situation because, of course, he hadn't actually killed anyone and he could always deny any knowledge that the bodies being brought to him were murder victims. But Knox was not an unintelligent man. He was a doctor after all. And any reasonable analysis of his role in this must conclude that he had to have known that something fishy was going on. It's not that Knox was particularly evil. There were doctors across Britain, across the world, who would have done exactly the same as he did. It's just that his suppliers got caught. And once they were caught, there was no way that Knox could deny that he knew that anything untoward was going on. The case against him could never make it to legal court, but of course he was tried in the court of public opinion. And in that trial, he was found emphatically guilty. His career in Scotland was in ruins and he was forced to move down to London. He tried to salvage that career, but he never reached those heights that he had reached in Edinburgh, and he died in the 1860s a shadow of his former self. Of course, none of these fates were as bad as the fate that awaited William Burke. On the freezing cold morning of the 28th of January, 1829, Burke was brought to Edinburgh's Lawn Market Square, where a crowd of about 25,000 people had gathered, screaming and hurling abuse at him. Noticeably shivering, perhaps because of the cold or perhaps because of the hostile crowd, a noose was placed around William Burke's neck and he was hung until he died. The man who had once been an affable, friendly, popular husband and father on the west coast of Ireland ended his days as a brutal murderer in front of a crowd of 25,000 people baying for his blood. In a delicious twist of irony, as an executed criminal, there was only one place that William Burke's body would end up, on a doctor's operating table in a lecture hall. <laughs>
You'll have to accept my apologies for the crudeness of that, but I just think that last bit of irony was fully deserving of a bit of laughter. Was there anything else positive to come out of this story? Well, in fact, yes, there was. Soon after this case in Edinburgh, there was another similar case in London, and Parliament decided that it had to act. Now, just as it had been an act of Parliament in the early 1820s that had turbocharged the gravedigging trade, so it would be an act of Parliament in the early 1830s that would essentially bring it to an end. The Anatomy Act of 1832 gave scientists hugely increased access to corpses. It also allowed people to voluntarily give up their bodies when they died for scientific experiments. Of course, all these reforms came too late for the at least 16 victims of the Burke and Hare gang. Theirs were sad and tragic stories. Some of the most vulnerable people in society targeted by a ruthless and greedy gang, their bodies sold for profit. It's impossible not to feel anguish at the story of the teenage girl who turned up at the lodgings looking for her mother, only to be killed. At the story of the eight-year-old blind boy whose back was so brutally broken on William Hare's lap. There can indeed be glamour in the stories of some criminals, but there's not one iota of glamour in the story of William Burke, William Hare, Helen MacDougall and Margaret Laird. Having said all that, I hope you still enjoyed the podcast. Tune in next week when we'll be discussing another murder, again from the 19th century. You might think I need to branch out. Talking of branching out, make sure you have a look at the blog. Just type in the Ministry of History on Google and it will be one of the top results. You can find the written version of this story as well as many other stories and mini biographies of so many interesting characters from throughout history. If you're on Twitter, remember it's at Ministry History, all one word with no of in the middle. Give us a follow and I guarantee I do produce some good content. The Ministry of History is obviously not an academic source. I'm influenced by all types of writings, but for this one in particular, I was influenced particularly by Ben Johnson's article about the Birkenhair murders on the historic UK website.